0: We all need to laugh.
1: We choose truth over facts.
0: And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical mental soap, my physical
1: as well as my mental soap
0: fitness. Coffee time. And good morning to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club, Conservative Hour of Power Special Edition. Uh, thank you for hanging out with us uh, last uh, episode when we had the Davids on, David Haig and David Ignell. Uh, after the show, David Ignell and I had a conversation about how we might be able to get his book into more people's hands and everybody's busy these days. And I know that audiobooks have become a pretty popular way to do that. And, and podcasts like this uh, are a convenient way for us to consume all the massive amount of, of uh, information that's constantly being pumped out. Uh, and we got other stuff to do, like, I don't know, change diapers and wash dishes and, you know, get groceries and that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I proposed to David that, What we might do, if he was game, is actually take his book and give him the platform to go ahead and just read it to you in his own voice, because who better to read you the book than the author himself? He knows where all the uh, syntax is and where the emphasis should be added, and after all, he did all the research. So he owns this information. Welcome back to the, uh, the cafe, as it were, David.
1: Well, thank you, Jason. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, that you are giving um, people like myself and, and David Haig to get the word out about what's going on uh, in our state and in our country. And uh, you know, I uh, I thought your suggestion after the show on Saturday was great. Um, you know, put the book in another format uh, so that people can listen to it as they're as they're doing other things. Uh, so yeah, I, I, really, uh, appreciate the opportunity and, uh, for, for anyone listening to this, um, this is a book that I, I wrote over the summer and, uh, I finished it at the, uh, the end of August and, uh, posted it on my website, uh, which is powered by justice.com and, uh, anyone who wants to, you know, download it, it's free um, can go to my site and download it and uh, it's there. And one of the advantages I think in you know if some of the things that you hear on this uh, on this audiobook are of interest to you, um, I want you to know that uh, there's about 300 footnotes uh, in the book that support uh, you know pretty much everything that I'm saying. And in in the audiobooks I, I won't be going, uh, over those footnotes. So, if you want to see the source of something that I say, um, you know, you can go to my book and you can see where I got that from. Uh, the, my book is not about the Alaska grand jury, according to David Ignell. Uh, my book is uh, draws from uh, a lot of people uh, who are um, educators. Uh, politicians. uh, There's some famous people in there, uh, some of the founders of our country. And my book was, uh, my research was just going back and drawing out these sources and condensing it into one place uh, where people could understand uh, what the Alaska Grand Jury is all about. And the title of my book is long, but it... um, it, it draws this out. So the title of my book is The Alaska Grand Jury, Its Historical Common Law Development, Its Power to Investigate Anything of Public Concern, and Its Suppression by Alaskan Officials Who Fear Its Independence. So I'm going to start out by reading you uh, my foreword to the book. That's uh, the first page. And it goes like this my study on the alaska grand jury was inspired by the wrongful conviction and continued imprisonment of thomas jack jr a kind considerate and honest citizen from the southeast village of hoona alaska twice tried but never before a jury of his peers he remains innocent under the presumption of our laws mr jack was convicted only after a second lopsided trial with a new state-appointed attorney from hundreds of miles away, forced by a Juno judge to defend him while completely unprepared. Mr. Jack's case exposes the dark side of all three branches of Alaska's state government. Abuse of power and tyranny by the executive branch. Political motivations of the judicial branch and nearly complete indifference by the legislative branch. When presented with opportunities to correct any one of several glaring violations of Mr. Jack's constitutional rights, officials representing these three pillars of Alaska government have repeatedly refused to honor their oaths to uphold the Alaska Constitution. But Alaskans have a fourth pillar of government, to help salvage their constitutional rights. The Alaska Grand Jury. An impartial body of ordinary citizens, it exists primarily for the purpose of curbing inappropriate government behavior and protecting citizens. As founder Yule Kilcher told his fellow delegates during the Alaska Constitutional Convention, the Alaska Grand Jury may be the refuge of last resort for the people whose cases are not dealt properly by the courts, often for political reasons. Mr. Jack's case supplies ample and compelling evidence that the Alaska court system and the Alaska Department of Law should be investigated by an Alaska grand jury. A key witness in his case from HUNA, a citizen who previously served his country for 25 years and is an unwavering believer in Mr. Jack's complete innocence stated recently quote prosecutors and judges should be obligated to follow the truth no matter where it leads unquote other examples of government tyranny by these Alaska government agencies have broken through the surface and undoubtedly many others still lie below justice awaits an Alaska Grand Jury investigation, to discern the truth behind these cases and make its recommendations to the public. And my forward ends with a quote from activist Ida B. Wells. Quote, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. Unquote.
0: So that's if- it if you are if you're listening to this podcast and uh, you, and it's more than just a passing amusement, uh, we really do recommend that you take a look at the actual book. Um, share it with people. What I'm impressed by this endeavor before we get into the first chapter is that this is uh, not profiteering on the pain of victims of this system. It's freely given. And, um, uh, we cannot really, it's kind of like the salvation of Christ. All you got to do is, is ask and you shall receive. In this case, all you have to do is go to your, your search bar and type in the website and hit download. And, uh, as David said, uh, this is not fake news. This is, uh, there are many, many, many citations available to you. Uh, if you really want to dig into this, I know that, uh, some of my more scholarly friends when they uh, when they consume material, they generally, if they can get it on on uh, on an audiobook, they will. and they'll read along with the text and uh, and engage different parts of their brains so they they actually absorb the information, and they too then can own the information and become experts on it when uh, becoming apologists for whatever case or position it is that they're they're studying. So it's our duty as uh, citizens to be active in our Republican form of democracy and uh, to have a voice and use that voice. And thank you, David, for using your voice. Uh, We are going to keep this raw and real. So if you're expecting a polished uh, presentation, uh, you might hear a cough or a sneeze or or maybe a, a stutter in the middle of uh, of, of the, the recording here, we discussed doing a, an after production edit on it. But I think there's real value in hearing just uh, straight from the author, uh, as raw and direct as possible. And imagine if you will, that he's uh, sitting across the table from you with his cup of coffee and uh, and it's coffee time. And we're gonna talk about important matters of our day. So. Thank you, uh, David, and I'll let you have the floor. I'm going to tune off here. I will be on the soundboard uh, listening in case anything happens or if there's a a sudden uh, need to take a break. Um, But uh, we're just going to launch into it. And when you listen to this podcast, if you're looking for the whole book, I will be publishing it under Special Episodes Ignell. And so it'll be Special Episode Ignell 1 is today. And the other uh, thirteen will follow, if I'm not mistaken. There's fourteen chapters in the book. So, uh, thank you, David. And the floor is yours.
1: Uh, thanks, thanks, Jason. Yes, um, uh, I will. Uh, I will just uh, continue. I, I, I just. It might be uh, beneficial for your audience members to know that. Um, uh, I got into this because I was doing some volunteer work for the California Innocence Project. And uh, a few days after my father died um, in Juneau, I was talking to a friend, and a lifelong uh, family friend in Juneau. And when he heard, he asked me what I was doing, and when he heard what I was doing, he told me about a guy out at uh, the jail in Juneau who everybody said was innocent. And uh, I didn't know that person. Uh, and it turned out that uh, he was from the village of Huna. You know, this is Thomas Jack. And uh, he was from the village of Huna where I had at the time I had owned uh, an apartment building there uh, for a few years and, and spent three to four months each year there. So the first thing I did is I went and talked to uh, local residents in Huna who I'd learned to know and trust over the years. And uh, to a person, uh, they all thought that uh, Mr. Jack was innocent. So, I, using my training from the California Innocence Project, I started pulling court files uh, in his case and uh, came across some things that were uh, that the judge had uh, done in the case that were extremely disturbing. And so I've been writing about this as a volunteer. I, I'm, I, uh, you know, I've, I've taken no money from anybody for this and, uh, I don't want to, uh, I want this to be pure. Uh, my, my mission in this, my, my whole thing, my whole motivation for volunteering for the California Innocence Project in the first place, uh, came out of Proverbs 31 8. Uh, when I read that, when I, when I, when I read chapter 31, I was going through a time of personal crisis. And, um I, I, I read that and, and the verse that stuck out to me the most was 31.8, which says, speak up for the rights of others who, who need an advocate. So that's what I'm doing here. And, and, uh, for the last three or four years, I've been working on this project. Um, and, uh, knocking on doors and, um, uh, I'm just so grateful, uh, to, to people like Jason and his, uh, podcasts, which are, uh, allowing the truth, uh, to, to be shown. And, uh, this has led to, uh, the case of Thomas Jack exposes, uh, a lot of things that are wrong in Alaska. And uh, it's the gateway to uh, making things right again. And this this is why, uh, you know, I wrote about the grand jury, because uh, all other three branches of government have failed, as I said in my foreword, they have failed to do anything about this egregious uh, injustice. And it's through the grand jury that we're going to right these wrongs. So I will uh, continue now with uh, uh, the next part of my book, which is Introduction and Overview of Chapters. Article 1 of the Alaska Constitution is our state's version of the National Bill of Rights. Section 8 of the article establishes the constitutional protections of the Alaska Grand Jury. The final sentence of Section 8 reads, quote, The power of grand juries to investigate and make recommendations concerning the public welfare, welfare or safety shall never be suspended, unquote. This specific sentence was cemented by our founders into our Bill of Rights in a convincing 44 to 8 vote, at the Alaska Constitutional Convention in 1956. Before that vote was taken, the last convention delegate to speak on the scope of the power embodied in this sentence was John Hellenthal, an Anchorage attorney born in Juneau, whose father had practiced law in Alaska since 1905 and had been a territorial judge. Mr. Hellenthal told his fellow founders, quote, the grand jury can investigate anything." Through the adoption of Section 8, our founders deliberately guaranteed Alaska citizens the continued use of one of the public's most powerful tools to help ensure honest, transparent, and efficient government at all levels. As will be shown in this study, embedded within the last section of Section 8, are nearly 400 years of American common law precedent to investigate and report to the public on matters which affect our public welfare and safety. The final four words of that sentence, quote, shall never be suspended, unquote, has special meaning. The grand jury's powers can never be hindered or delayed by government officials. Yet that is exactly what has happened in Alaska for the last thirty seven years after a Juno grand jury investigated improper conduct by Governor Bill Sheffield's administration and recommended that he be impeached from office following the political firestorm in which our elected senators failed to hold our governor accountable, all three branches of the Alaska government ganged up on the Alaska Grand Jury to obscure its powers in very subtle ways. The purpose of this study on the Alaska Grand Jury is to restore its broad powers to prominence in our culture, to scrub away the layers of smoke, tarnish, and mud that some misguided officials have tried to obscure it with since this Sheffield affair. For Alaska citizens to achieve justice through the strength of the Grand Jury's foundation, to be knowledgeable of the high importance our founders placed on it despite its cost, to realize the many benefits a strong, independent Grand Jury provides to the public. To truly understand the broad powers of the Alaska Grand Jury requires us to go way back in time and trace its development under common law the form of law most insulated from politics. For those readers who may not be familiar with this term, common law is defined as, quote, the part of law that is derived from customs and judicial precedent rather than statutes, unquote. Common law originated in England and continued its development in America. This is the source of the, quote, power unquote, specified in Alaska's constitution. Resting on footings of truth, the Alaska Grand Jury's foundation has been built up brick by brick over centuries of time based on local customs and the will of the people. It developed from necessity into a fortress of independence and freedom from political powers that dominate government. These hallmarks of the Grand Jury earned it the reputation as the most reliable body for citizens to counter poor or inappropriate government conduct and to promote principles of fairness in the administration of justice. Judge Francis Hawkinson, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, called the grand jury, quote, a body of truth and power, inferior to none but the legislature itself." The footings of the grand jury were laid down in England nearly 1,000 years ago to help the king ascertain the truth in criminal charges. Over the next few centuries, an independence gradually emerged to provide English citizens with a forum to protect themselves from prosecutors and judges who abused their power. The independence of the grand jury continued to grow until eventually it began to protect citizens from the king himself. These common law powers remain with us today to help protect us against state officials who don't honor their oaths to the people. Chapter one will show how the grand jury's independence developed in England, creating a safe haven for all citizens from government officials who abused their political power. The chapter will show how closely the oath taken today by grand jurors in Alaska follows the oath taken by English grand jurors in, quote, ancient times, unquote. It will provide examples of how English grand jurors carried out their duties under their oath to properly investigate charges and question witnesses. It will show how under the common law, truth is more easily ascertained when some jurors have personal knowledge of the parties, witnesses, facts, or crime scene. Chapter 2 will show how the American colonists brought the grand jury concept over from England and expanded its use into matters of civic concern. They added a common law reporting power to the grand jury's independence and investigative powers, to inform the public of important matters in their communities. When grand juries found that government officials or departments weren't acting in the best interests of the public, they reported their findings to the community so that corrective action could be taken. Towards the end of the colonial era, America grand juries also played a prominent role in the struggle for independence. Chapter 3 will show how grand juries throughout the United States adapted to changing times. They remained a vital component in building and maintaining our principles of democracy and fairness through times of industrial growth, turbulence, and peace. As cities grew, grand juries continued to expose government incompetence and in some cases was the only way to defeat corruption. As corporations grew, the grand juries protected citizens from mon- monopolistic activities and price gouging. Chapter 4, as a case study, will document the efforts of grand juries in New York City over decades to battle government corruption and their resourcefulness when government officials tried to stand in the way. Because of the immense power largely immune to political subjugation, the American Grand Jury has obviously developed some very powerful enemies over the years. Chapter 5 will show how the common law powers of the Grand Jury were attacked in some other states leading up to the Alaska Constitutional Convention. Whether these attacks were underwritten by the big government and corporate interests or, quote, fuzzy-minded crackpots, unquote, advocating reform, Many states saw their common law powers eroded by legislation, and in a few states, the grand jury was abolished. To counter these attacks, some prominent citizens spoke out in defense of the grand jury, and citizen groups were formed. Chapter 6 will take a quick look at the work of two studies completed in the 1990s, calling for the increased use of of investigative grand juries in federal courts and in administrative matters. These authors lament the growing disconnect between American citizens and their governments. Recalling the important functions the common law grand jury served in the past, they advocate for its revival to help rekindle citizen interest in government affairs. The latter of these studies is also important for documenting how the enemies of the grand jury have been able to render render it powerless through seemingly innocuous court rules. This is the danger we face in Alaska today. These court rules can lead to dangerous and fearful consequences, such as is the case in Colorado, where the truth about hazardous nuclear waste near the city of Denver has been suppressed by federal judges for the last 30 years. Chapter seven of this study will begin to segue into events taking place in Alaska by examining a specific case out of New Jersey in 1952. It is of importance to Alaska for three reasons. First, it documents the historical development of the common law powers of the grand jury just three years before the Alaska Constitutional Convention was held. Second, the case opinion was written by a judge who was known to many of our founders and was recognized on the floor of the convention. Third, this case was used by the Alaska Attorney General 33 years later to support the publication of the Juneau Grand Jury's report in the Sheffield Affair. The case was harshly and unfairly attacked by Mr. Sheffield's lawyers in the ensuing proceedings in the Alaska Senate. Chapter eight presents the thoughts of Alaska founders regarding the necessity of the grand jury and is deservedly one of the longest chapters of this study. It recounts the lengthy floor debate at the 1955 to 1956 Alaska Constitutional Convention on the issue of whether the grand jury should be available to citizens accused of crimes. At least a dozen delegates spoke passionately on this subject, many of whom identified instances of false accusations and prosecutorial bias. It shows that the founders overwhelmingly voted to cement the common law powers of the grand jury into the Bill of Rights, despite its cost to a poor state. The biographies of some of these founders who spoke up during the debates will be briefly sketched to help illustrate the experience they spoke and voted from. Chapter 8 also sets out the convention debate that led to the powerful sentence discussed at the beginning of this introduction, which closes out Article 1, Section 8 of our Constitution. Compared to the powers of the grand juries impaneled by the federal government and the other 49 states, the raw power of the Alaska grand jury ranks among the strongest in the country because of this debate. The Alaska grand jury's constitutionally perfected investigatory and reporting power under the common law can't be watered down by legislators, prosecutors, or judges. Its constitutional standing can be amended only by a vote of the people and therein lies our ability to restore its prominence today instead of tomorrow. From statehood in 1959 through 1985, the Alaska grand jury regularly investigated and reported on perceived shortcomings of state and local government officials and agencies. The Alaska court system and from here on I'll refer to it as ACS, used to tout and encourage this power in its grand jury handbook that it distributed to grand jurors to guide them during their civic duty. But all that began to change in 1985 after a Juneau grand jury investigated former Governor Bill Sheffield and recommended to the legislature that he be impeached. Ten women... And five men from Juneau with diverse backgrounds detailed in a lengthy report the highly influential role Mr. Sheffield and his staff played in steering $10 million of the public's money towards a Fairbanks office building in which one of his political fundraisers held a financial interest. The report dealt with specificity, how the governor was not forthright in explaining his actions how his chief of staff lied to investigators before the grand jury became involved, and how an assistant in the governor's office followed directions to use a private phone line to alert the fundraiser of the investigation. Practically overnight, the investigative powers of Alaska grand juries became the enemy of powerful political forces within the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. Most of these government officials undoubtedly recognized that if a grand jury had the ability to wield its powers to ascertain the truth and call out a governor, it could do the same to any of them. Those in power must have feared what they and their political parties and organizations could not control. The account of the report Published by the Juno Grand Jury detailing the findings of their investigation and subsequent events in the legislature will be detailed in chapters 9 through, 12, through 10. Following the Sheffield affair and under an unknown amount of pressure from the legislature, Alaska's judicial branch changed its tune and began to downplay the independence of the Alaska Grand Juries. And its broad investigative and reporting powers. In 1987, the Alaska Judicial Council remend- recommended court imposed rules that would put up roadblocks. In other words, quote, hinder, unquote, the reporting power of the Alaska grand juries. In 1988, three judges on the Alaska Supreme Court forced through these rules over the objection of the other two judges on the court who said the new rules violated Article 1, Section 8 of the Alaska Constitution. These actions by the Alaska Judicial Council and the Alaska court system will be detailed in Chapter 11. In 1990, those same three Alaska Supreme Court judges prevented important portions of an investigative report by an Alaska grand jury in Anchorage from being published. The report was critical of Anchorage school district officials who had quietly negotiated a termination agreement with a high school teacher having sex with one of his students. The three Supreme Court Court judges scrubbed out names and details from the report shortly before municipal and statewide elections preventing Alaskans from knowing the truth. Once again, Their two counterparts on the Supreme Court said what the majority was doing violated Article I, Section 8 of the Alaska Constitution. The disturbing actions of the Supreme Court in this 1990 case will be further detailed in Chapter 12. Since 1990, it appears the Alaska court system has tried to quietly sweep the independence and investigatory powers of the grand jury under the proverbial carpet. The current grand jury handbook distributed by courts to Alaskan citizens chosen to serve on the grand jury bears little resemblance to the original handbook. Explanation of the investigatory powers appear towards the end of the current handbook, not the beginning. Contrary to well-entrenched common law, grand juries are now admonished not to research things on their own and told they may be excused if they have personal knowledge of events. Contrary to the, to the original handbook, the ability of the public to approach the grand jury has been removed. Today, the grand jurors are led to believe they are beholden to the prosecutors when the truth is the opposite. The prosecutors are beholden to the grand jury. The changes over time to the Alaska grand jury handbook will be detailed in chapter 13. History teaches us that the adverse reaction of our public officials to the investigative powers of the Alaska grand jury was nothing new. Grand juries have historically earned enemy status by many government officials, whether incompetent, corrupt, or simply in error. Grand juries are the most effective tool that ordinary citizens possess to ensure good government. In Chapter 14, we'll offer suggestions how Alaskans can restore their grand juries to prominence as an effective watchperson of government affairs. The good news is that we have centuries of common law power on our side, which our founders cemented in our own Bill of Rights. And to get where we want to be, American grand jurors before us have provided a guide for steering around obstacles that misguided government officials might put in our way. That's the end of the introduction.
0: Well, that's a lot of uh, information to unpack, and uh, it, I look forward to the, the uh, continued read on this. Um, for those of you who may not know, Mr. Ignell is uh, is a resident of the state of Alaska, Uh, we recommend that you listen to the previous podcast, uh, podcast number 49 and, uh, check that out to hear a little bit about his backstory, but, uh, we are recording his voice over a phone connection. So, um, if for some reason the phone has a glitch or an issue in that, that may transmit across the lines here, but we appreciate your tuning in. Please share this information with your friends and family. And uh, I think we will take a quick pause and uh, allow David to get a drink of water and uh, stretch his legs. (laughs) And uh, it's a a lot to sit behind a microphone or on a phone and talk nonstop. Uh, We've been running for about 35 minutes here. And uh, through the magic of the switchboard, you won't even know he's gone. So we're going to take a quick break and then sign right back on. All right, and we're back. Uh, before we launch into chapter one, I just want to take a quick opportunity to give a shout out to one of our sponsors, Last or uh, Seldovia Fishing Adventures, and the House on the Rock B and B has uh, been a gracious supporter of the shop this quarter. And uh, to learn more about that, give us a call, check out our website, or listen to the podcast. Uh, they have sponsored our grand prize drawing for paid membership. So if you want to learn about paid membership, you can check out the Amocan Coffee Social Club website, which is Ninja. We're going to jump right back in with David Ignell in Chapter 1 of his book Concerning Alaska Grand Juries. David, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Jason. Um, before I start reading chapter one, um, I, I want to make a comment about the, uh, the prior introduction and, and this is reflected in the title of chapter one. Uh, my father was a, uh, a custom home builder in Juneau. He and my mom came up to Juneau in 1951, uh, to, to help establish a, a church in Juneau and, uh, he, w- he would build one home a year in in juneau for most of his life <clears throat> adult life and uh you know i i learned from him that uh in a rainforest if you want a uh a building to to last a long time you have to have a solid foundation and you you build upon that uh you can have the the nicest roof in the in the uh in the world but if you if it's on a, a weak foundation uh, it, it, it crumbles and there's, you know, there's that old, uh, Bible, you know, there's that old song, uh, I remember from Sunday school, you know, a wise man builds his house upon the rock. And, uh, so I have, uh, in writing about the grand jury because its foundation is so essential and that's the common law foundation, uh, that I talked about in the introduction and in which I'm about to talk about in chapter one. It's this common law foundation. That makes the uh, uh, the grand jury so powerful. So, without further uh, introduction, let me let me start chapter one: the English common law foundation of the Alaska grand jury. To fully understand the independence and powers of the Alaska grand jury, it is necessary to begin by closely examining its common law foundation. First established in England. Centuries before the America colonies were formed, common law embodies the basic principles of truth, fairness, and liberty that guide people who desire to be free and live among each other in peace. It is these common objectives of ordinary citizens that define the structure of the Alaska Grand Jury, not any rigid or restrictive rules that government officials may unlawfully seek to restrain it with. Indeed, the cornerstone of the Alaska Grand Jury is its independence from government. Alaska Grand Juries were intended by our founders to be formed pursuant to common law, to be an unbiased cross-section of the community of short-term duration without rigid procedural rules that possess a meaningful voice in protecting citizens from inappropriate government action. Our founders strongly believed it was necessary to cement this common law independence from government into our Constitution. The most influential judicial body in our country, the United States Supreme Court, has recognized the heavy influence of English common law on American grand juries. This recognition includes an express acknowledgement of the grand jury's independence, free from government control. In a nineteen fifty six opinion, the same year that the Alaska Constitution was formed, the US Supreme Court stated, quote, The Grand Jury is an English institution brought to this country by the early colonists and incorporated in the Constitution by the founders. There is every reason to believe that our constitutional grand jury was intended to operate substantially like its English progenitor. Grand jurors were selected from the body of the people and their work was not hampered by rigid procedural or evidential rules. In fact, Grand jurors could act on their own knowledge and were free to make their presentments or indictments on such information as they deemed satisfactory. It acquired an independence in England free from control from the crown or judges, unquote. The English grand jury got its start nearly 1,000 years ago, first introduced by King Henry II to aid in the administration of his kingdom. In those earliest times, it was comprised of 12 knights or good and lawful men who would disclose under oath the name of individuals believed guilty of criminal charges and then make a, quote, presentment, unquote, of their sworn accusations to a judge. Gradually, the grand juries came to also consider accusations by third parties and quote indictments unquote by the king's prosecutors returning a true bill if they found the accusation true or a no or a no bill if they found it false. Over the next several centuries, the English grand jury evolved to become a strong independent power guarding the rights of people against politically motivated charges false accusations, and against prosecutors, judges, and even royalty who abused their authority. The grand juries did not have to divulge to the judges the evidence upon which they acted, and when the king's officials abused their authority, the grand jury intervened to protect citizens. With the growth and consolidation of royal power in England, the grand jury became highly prized as defenders of the liberties of the people, and shields against government persecution. The independence of the grand jury was widely celebrated throughout England in 1681, when a grand jury refused to indict Anthony Ashley Cooper, the first Earl of Shaftesbury, on charges of high treason. These charges had been brought by the king's prosecutors after Mr. Cooper's fiery speech in the House of Lords. In this speech, Mr. Cooper had expressed mistrust of the English king, Charles II, and urged Parliament not to approve any taxes until, quote, the king shall satisfy the people that what we give is not to make us slaves, unquote. The king sought to silence his political adversary by throwing him in jail but the grand jury wouldn't let him and protected Mr. Cooper by returning a, quote, no bill, unquote. John Lord Somers, the Lord Chancellor of England at that time, defended the independence of the grand jury by anonymously publishing a treatise entitled, quote, The Security of Englishmen's Lives or the Trust, Power, and Duty of the Grand Juries of England, unquote, that examined its historical development. This treatise documented centuries of English common law precedent regarding the grand jury's independence and impartiality. Lord Summers examined the sworn oath of grand jurors and gave a detailed explanation of their inherent, excuse me, their inherent duty to thoroughly investigate matters and not rely simply on representations of prosecutors, their witnesses, or advice of judges. The remainder of this chapter will focus on Lord Summers' observations and security of Englishmen's lives. They remain acutely relevant and helpful today in understanding the common law powers of the Alaska Grand Jury as they were cemented into the Alaska Constitution by our founders centuries later in 1956. Lord Summers began his treatise by establishing the great importance of the common law grand jury, setting it up on a pedestal aside the legislative branch of government. Quote, the trust and power of grand juries is and ought to be accounted among the greatest and of most concern next to the legislative, the justice of the whole kingdom in criminal cases almost wholly depending upon their ability and integrity in the due execution of their office besides the concernments of all commoners the honor reputation estates and lives of all the nobility of england are so far submitted to their censure unquote regarding the common law qualifications of individuals who could serve on a grand jury Lord Somers outlined the need for impartial people who were largely independent from the government. They should be known within the community as possessing good and competent character. To guard against them being corrupted by love of power, it was necessary to make grand jury service temporary in duration. Quote, "Our ancestors thought it not best to trust this great concern of their lives and interests in the hands of any officer of the kings, or in any judge's name by him, nor in any certain number of men during life, lest they should be awed or influenced by great men, corrupted by bribes, flatteries, or love of power, or become negligent, or partial to friends and relations, or pursue their own quarrels or private revenges, or connive at the conspiracies of others, and indict thereupon. Unquote. Actually, quote again. Grand jurors ought, by the old common law, to be lawful liege people of ripe age, not overaged or infirm, and of good fame amongst their neighbors, free from all reasonable suspicion of any design for himself or others upon the estates or lives or any suspected criminals or quarrel or controversy with any of them. They ought to be indifferent and impartial, even before they are admitted even before they are admitted to be sworn, and of sufficient understanding and estate for so great a trust. Unquote. Lord Summers emphasized the necessity of grand jurors to remain independent in their quest for truth and justice, beyond the reach of judges. Good grand jurors will listen to but not necessarily accept judicial advice. Grand grand juries have many resources at their disposal. It is their prerogative which resources to pursue and which to ultimately rely on. The sole objective of the grand jury is determining the truth to the very best of their ability. Quote, If it be asked how or in what manner the jury shall inquire, the answer is ready according to the best of their understandings. They only, not the judges, are sworn to to search diligently to find out all treasons and crimes within their charge. And they must and ought to use their own discretion in the way and manner of their inquiry. No directions can legally be imposed upon them by any court or judges. An honest jury will thankfully accept good advice from judges, as they are assistants, but they are bound by their oaths to present the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, to the best of their own, not the judge's knowledge. Neither they, without breach of that oath, resign their consciences or blindly submit to the dictates of others, and therefore ought to receive or reject such advices as they judge them to be good or bad, unquote. Renowned English jurist Sir William Blackstone later echoed Lord Summers' emphasis on the importance of the grand jury's independence from judges and prosecutors to achieve impartial administration of justice. Sir Blackstone observed that even the natural integrity of government officials could be frequently insufficient to overcome their involuntary bias towards others of less stature. Quote, The impartial administration of justice, which secures both our persons and properties, is the great end of civil society. But if that be entirely entrusted to the magistrate, a select body of men, and those generally selected by the prince or such as enjoy the highest offices in the state, their decisions, in spite of their own natural integrity, will have frequently an involuntary bias towards those of their own rank and dignity. It is not to be expected from human nature that the few should always be attentive to the interests of the many, unquote. Grand jurors must remain mindful there will be occasions when the judges who advise them may have an agenda not consistent with truth or justice. Lord Summers singled out the courage of a grand jury who stood up to a judge who had attempted to, quote, usurp a lordly dictorian power, unquote, to compel them to reach a conclusion contrary to the evidence, quote. Here was a bold battery made upon the ancient fence of our reputations and lives. If that justice's will had passed for law, all the gentlemen of the grand juries must have been the basest vassals to the judges and have been penally obliged to have sworn to the directions or dictates of the judges. But thanks be to God, the late long parliament could not bear such a bold invasion of the English liberty, The oath sworn by grand jurors was another important topic that Lord Somers addressed in his treatise. Quote, Our ancestors appointed an oath to be imposed upon them which cannot be altered except by act of parliament. Therefore, every grand juryman is sworn as the foreman in the words following. Quote, you shall diligently inquire In true presentment make of all such articles, matters, and things as shall be given to you in charge, and of all other matters and things as shall come to your own knowledge, touching this present service. The King's counsel, your fellows and your own, you shall keep secret. You shall present no person for hatred or malice, neither shall you leave anyone unpresented for favor or affection, for love or gain, or any hopes thereof. But in all things you shall present the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the best of your knowledge, so help you God. Today in Alaska, the following oath, sworn by the grand jurors pursuant to Alaska Rule of Criminal Procedure 6.1c1, still closely follows the common law oath taken by Lord Summers ancestors. Quote, you and each of you as members of this grand jury of the state of Alaska do solemnly swear or affirm that you will diligently inquire and true presentment make of all such matters as shall be given to you for consideration or shall otherwise come to your knowledge in connection with your present service that you will preserve the secrecy required by law as to all proceedings had before you, that you will present no one through envy, hatred, or malice, or leave anyone unpresented through fear, affection, gain, reward, or hope thereof, but that you will present all things truly and impartially, as they shall come to your knowledge according to the best of your understanding. Unquote. Lord Somers gave considerable attention to the duties embodied within the Grand Juror's Oath. Each juror had a responsibility to diligently seek out the truth of the matter and to guard against false informers and pretenders. They were required to acquaint themselves with the backgrounds and reputations of witnesses and those accused and not be ignorant of relevant facts they could inquire of. Grand jurors by law must be from the neighborhood where the alleged crime was committed, and it was expected that at least some of them might have personal insight into the circumstances. These various duties are more succinctly addressed in the following excerpt, which should serve as a useful guide for Alaska grand jurors. Quote, their express oath binds them to be diligent in their inquiries, that is, to receive no suggestion of any crime for truth without examining all the circumstances about it that fall within their knowledge, they ought to consider the first informers and inquire as far as they can into their aims and pretenses in their prosecutions. If revenge or gain should appear to be their ends, there ought to be the greater suspicion of the truth of their accusations. Next, the jury are bound to inquire into the matters themselves, whereof any man is accused as to the time, place, and all other circumstances of the fact alleged. There have been false informers that have suggested things impossible. The jury ought also to inquire after the witnesses, their condition and quality, their fame and reputation, their means of subsistence, in the occasion whereby the facts whereof they bear witness, came to their knowledge. Neither may the jury lawfully omit to inquire concerning the parties accused of their quality, reputation, and the manner of their conversation, with many other circumstances, from whence they may be greatly helped to make right inferences of the falsehood or truth of the crimes whereof any man shall be accused. The jury ought to be ignorant of nothing Whereof they can inquire, or be informed, that may in their understandings enable them to make a true presentment or indictment of the matters before them. Tis certainly inconsistent with their oaths to shut their ears against any lawful man that can tell them anything relating unto a crime in question before them. No man will believe, nor can they themselves think that they desire to find, present the truth of a fact if they shall refuse to hear any man who shall pretend such knowledge of it or such material circumstances as may be useful to discover it, whether that which shall be said by the pretenders will answer the jury's expectations must rest in their judgments when they have heard them. It seems, therefore, from the words of the oath, that there is no bound or limit set save their own understanding or conscience, to restrain them to any number or sort of persons of whom they are bound to inquire. They ought first and principally to inquire of one another mutually, what knowledge each of them have of any matters in question before them. The law presumes that some, at least, of so many sufficient men of a county, must know or have heard of all notable things done there against the public peace. For that end, the juries are by the law to be of the neighborhood to the place where the crimes are committed. If the parties and the facts whereof they are accused be known to the jury or any of them, their own knowledge will supply the room of many witnesses. Next, they ought to inquire of all such witnesses as the prosecutors will produce against the accused. They are bound to examine all fully and prudently to the best of their skill. As for the better discovery of truth, of any fact in question, the credit of the witnesses and the value of the testimonies, it is the duty of the grand inquest to be well informed concerning the parties indicated, of their usual residence, their estates, and matter of living, their companions and friends with whom they are accustomed to converse, such knowledge being necessary to make a good judgment upon most accusations. But most of all, in suspicions or indictments of secret treasons or treasonable words, where the accusers can be of no credit, if it be altogether incredible that such things as they testify should come to their knowledge, Lord Summers repeatedly emphasized the need to guard against false testimony and to closely weigh the credibility of witnesses. He suggested methods that grand jurors could apply to deter orchestrated testimony, which was perceived to be of a particular risk when presented through the prosecution. Quote, they are to search out the truth of such informations as come before them and to reject the indictment if it not be sufficiently proved. And farther... If they have reasonable suspicion of malice or wicked designs against any man's life or estate by such as offer a bill of indictment, the laws of God and of the kingdom bind them to use all possible means to discover the villainy. And if it appear to them, whereof they are the legal judges, to be a conspiracy or malicious combination against the accused, they are bound by the hob- highest obligations upon men and Christians not only to reject such a bill of indictment, but to indict forthwith all of the conspirators with their abettors and associates. For prevention of such plot- plotters of wickedness as now abound, was that statute in these words To eschew the mischiefs and damage done to divers of the commons by false accusers which oft times have made the accusi- accusations more for revenge and singular benefit than for the profit of the king or his people, which accused persons some have been taken and sometimes caused to come before the king's council by writ and otherwise upon grievous pain against the law. Witnesses may come prepared and tell plausible stories in open court if they know from the prosecutor to what they must answer and have agreed and acquainted each other with the tales they will tell and have resolved to be careful that all their answers to cross interrogatories may be conformable to their first stories. And if these relate only to words spoken at several times in private to distinct witnesses, in such a case, evidence if given in open court may seem to be very strong against the person accused though there be nothing of truth to it. But if witnesses were privately and separately examined by the grand inquest, as the law requires, and were to answer only such questions as they thought fit, and in such order as was in their best judgments, and most natural to find out the truth of the accusation, so that the witnesses could not guess what they should be asked first or last, nor one conjecture what the other had said, which they are certain of when they know beforehand what the prosecutor will ask in court of every of them and what they have resolved to answer, they, the grand jury, might possibly discern marks enough of falsehood. Unquote. The security of Englishmen's lives cautions us that the common law powers of the grand jury can never be taken for granted Powerful forces at odds with the public's best interest are always at work, seeking to gradually erode the grand jury's power. The public must be diligent in preserving its power to protect their freedom and property. Quote, I know too well that the wisdom and care of our ancestors in this institution of grand juries hath not been of late considered as it ought, nor the laws concerning them duly observed. Nor have the gentlemen and other men of estates in, in the several counties discerned how insensibly their legal power and jurisdiction in their grand and pettit juries, juries is decayed, and much of the means to preserve their own lives and interests taken out of their hands. Unquote. Lord Somers recognized that the beneficiary of a strong grand jury is not only the public, but the king. In other words, the executive branch of government. The public's faith in the administration of justice is of great benefit to the king's ability to rule peacefully. And officers of the court who would dare undermine that faith was a matter of great concern. Lord Summers stated that prosecutors who abuse their power against members of the public abuse the king as well and should be dealt with appropriately. Quote The prosecutors themselves notwithstanding their big words, and assuming themselves to be for the king. If their prosecution shall be proved to be malicious, or by conspiracy against the life or fortune of the accused, they are therein against the king, and ought to be indicted at the king's suit for such prosecutions done against his crown and dignity. And if an attorney general should be found, knowingly, guilty of abetting such a conspiracy, His office could not excuse or legally exempt him from suffering the villainous judgment to the destruction of him and his family. Tis esteemed in the law one of the most odious offenses against the king to attempt in his name to destroy the innocent, for whose protection he himself was ordained. Whoever is trusted in that employment Dishonors his master in office if he gives occasion to the subjects to believe that his master seeks other profits or advantages by accusations than the common peace and welfare. Profit or loss of that kind ought to have no place in the judicial proceedings against suspected criminals, but truth is only to be regarded, and for this reason the judgments given in court of human institution are, in scripture, called the judgments of God, who is the God of truth, unquote. Later in his treatise, Lord Summers returned once again to the critical concept of prosecutors following the truth in all regards. When prosecutors abused that trust, at a minimum they were imprisoned for a year and barred from advocating again in any court. Quote, The king's prosecutors take an oath to serve the people Whereof the party accused is one, as the king himself, and to minister the king's matters duly and truly after the course of the law to their cunning, not to use their cunning and craft to hide the truth and destroy the accused if they can. They are also obliged to put no manner of deceit or collusion upon the king's court, nor secretly to consent to any such tricks as may abuse or beguile the court or the party, be it in cases civil or criminal. And it is ordained that if any of them be convicted of such practices, he shall be imprisoned for a year and never be heard to plead again in any court. And if the mischievous consequence of their treacheries be great, they are subject to further and greater punishments. Our ancient law book, called the Mirror of Justice, says that every prosecutor is chargeable by his oath not to maintain or defend any wrong or falsehood to his knowledge, but shall leave his client when he shall perceive the wrong intended by him. Also, that he shall not move or proffer any false testimony, nor consent to any lies, deceits, or corruptions whatsoever. In his pleadings. In addition to prosecutors, Lord Summers also singled out judges as bearing a high level of responsibility for ensuring that justice is meted out fairly. Judges are required to make diligent inquisition after all manner of falsehoods, deceits, offenses, and wrongs done to any man, and thereupon to do justice according to the law. So that in the whole proceedings in order unto trial and in the trials themselves, the thing principally intended, which several persons are severally in their capacities obliged to pursue, is the discovery of truth. Unquote. Lord Summers illustrated this important duty by providing a few examples of English judges who succumbed to corruption or other sinister influences and failed to uphold the king's dignity by perverting justice. The consequences were often severe, at times even capital. During the reign of Edward I in the year 1289, the Archbishop of Canterbury made a speech to Parliament specifying offenses by judges in the land, breaking the Magna Carta, inciting the king against his people, and violating laws against pretense of administrating them. Parliament then found that all but two judges had violated their duties and condemned them to punishments ranging from banishment, perpetual imprisonment, to forfeiture of their estates. One hundred years later, during the reign of Richard II, eleven judges were sentenced to death for subscribing malicious indictments against the law in giving false interpretation of ancient laws. Lord Summers wrote that it would be, quote, an endless work to recite all the examples of this kind that are found in our histories and records, unquote, but didn't want to conclude without documenting documenting the following episode in which two judges were hanged for attempting to undermine the grand jury. Quote, But that of Empson and Dudley, two judges in the early 1500s, must not be omitted. They had craftily contrived to abolish grand juries and to draw the lives and the estates of the people into question without indictments by them. And by surprise and other wicked practices, they gained an act of parliament for their countenance. Hereupon, false accusations followed number without number Oppression and injustice broke forth like a flood, and to gain the king's favor, they filled his coffers. The indictments against them, mentioned in Anderson's report, are well worth reading, whereby they are charged with treason for subverting the laws and customs of the land in their proceedings without grand juries, and procuring the murmuring and hatred of the people against the king, to the great danger of him and his kingdom. In the wake of Lord Summers' treatise, other influential voices in England spoke up in support of the importance and independence of the grand jury from the courts. Sir John Halls, in his pamphlet called The Englishman's Rights, denied the right or power of any court to fine or imprison a grand jury. He also characterized the grand jury as an institution designed to prevent oppression. Henry Cares, English Liberty, or Freeborn Subject's Inheritance, also emphasized the importance of maintaining the independence of inquests from judicial interference. Bishop of Salisbury, Gilbert Burnett, fluent in Dutch, French, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, identified the grand jury as, quote, one of the greatest outworks of liberty, unquote. During the second half of the 17th century through the first half of the 18th century, the grand juries in the American colonies began to evolve and build upon the foundation established by their English progenitor. Chapter two will address how the colonists expanded the grand jury's role in their lives beyond criminal charges into matters of civic concern. And that's the end of chapter one
0: well you know uh as you're reading uh there david i couldn't help but draw a correlation to you know this this idea that knowledge is power and that those who control knowledge control power and hold power and ultimate control of power is necessary for tyranny to prevail and you know, much like uh, the church, the church's history uh, has not always been positive or full of sunshine and rainbows and ponies. Uh, we can look back to the Spanish Inquisition and we can look at different things, crimes that have been perpetrated by those claiming to represent the church. And oftentimes those crimes were perpetrated by withholding. The people's knowledge of the word, not allowing them to read the Bible or to have the word in the common tongue, the common language of the day. And as we listen to you, uh, quote, Lord Summers and others speaking in this older form of English, you know, for those of us less practiced in reading or speaking in that form, you know, it can be a daunting task to kind of unpack that and, uh, and understand it. Uh, that's why I recommend, highly recommend reading along as you, uh, listen to, um, David Reed, uh, the words of these, these, uh, really famous jurors and, uh, lawyers and judges and, and clergymen that, that weighed in on, on Liberty in this, this aspect. um,
1: yeah, Jason, if I could just interject. I'm I'm really glad that you brought up that point because, you know, it it's difficult for me to read old English. Um and uh uh you know, must be must be like pulling teeth to listen to. Um and I would highly re- you know, and, and I promise um uh, you know in chapter 2 two we go we you know we go across the pond to to America and and so we we get away from lord summers but when I wrote the book you know I felt it was important to uh you know go word for word what lord Summers was was saying because you know and, and something that the read that listeners may not understand is that the lord chance lord Summers, as as the as the Chancellor he, he's like back then he was the equivalent of the u s attorney general I mean he was the voice of England at this time, and his treatise is that's that's what makes his treatise so powerful but to understand that even then he had to he first published that anonymously. Anonymous.
0: yeah we're we're starting starting to have some uh interference on the phone here. Uh, let me, okay. ch- let me check this out. You're kind of starting to glitch out a little bit. Yeah. ATT and ts bars are falling, whether that's a coincidence or some deeper conspiracy, <laughs> we'll let the uh, tinfoil hat crowd uh, weigh in on that in their own time. You know, uh, the, the correlation I wanted to draw though, by, by talking about that is I myself have worked with the courts in various capacities over the years as a Practicing social worker carrying a license for 11 years and then Also serving on a licensing board for two terms and and acting, you know, uh, actually participating in investigations into allegations of of uh, malpractice and ethics and fraud um, And then working with uh, Administrative court judges, you know oftentimes I would look at the petitions and the reports that were written and uh, and they were written in such a cumbersome language, and it all has meaning, and it all is uh, necessary to clearly communicate in full what uh, the allegations are, or what the findings, you know, of an investigation are. To the layperson, to the, the guy that's just minding his own business out, you know, building houses or leading a church or, you know, working at the hospital, sitting down and reading a legal document is uh is not something i would consider to be on my top 10 list of fun things to do. <laughs> and so so language itself can become a barrier. The use of language in the courts, i believe in 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 Alaska has been used to take the common man out of the equation, that man who's intended to be the juror in either a petit or a grand jury. And To marginalize their role and say, well, you must greatly depend on, rely on, or, uh, uh, I guess, turn your power over to much more learned people than you, i.e. lawyers, prosecutors, judges, and in that, give your power up and, um, So it's, it's interesting. I'm, I really appreciate your willingness to do this. We're going to go ahead.
1: Let me, let me just add that, you know, because, you know, I, I, um, you know, what, what you're talking to is so important because, you know, I, I, run across people all the time that want to apologize to me for their lack of knowledge of the law. And, and this is what you're speaking to because, uh, you know, lawyers and judges want want everybody to think that they're so much smarter than everybody else. They're not. And and when 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 readers go in and you know, listeners, if they go to my book and they and they carefully read what what Lord Summers is saying, it's that the grand jury and a petite jury are all about common sense. And who's got that I mean regular people got more common sense than attorneys. I I can tell you that because I was, I I was an attorney for 10 years in California. I, I, I get this, Um, you know, in law school, they teach you how to think a certain way, Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's it's to try to make a a simple thing as complicated as possible. Um, Grand juries are about common sense. And, and, a, and a group of 15 people in Alaska get together, and it's up to them. I mean, this is what Lord Summers is, is saying. It's up to them to decide what's important. It, it's important that they get out and investigate on their own and to be familiar with people and figure out what's truth and what isn't. Because I can tell you, for Mr. Jack's case and, and other cases— there, there's a lot of things that, that are brought forward that aren't truth and so you know there, there's a saying that that is is horrible It says a, a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich you know that phrase has been around I think since the thir- 1930s or 1940s and it's, it's it's awful because grand juries are they have a duty to investigate and not to just sit back and fall asleep and listen to what the prosecutor puts in front of them. I mean, you know, what I just read is, is Lord summer saying, mix it up. You know, some of these witnesses are going to come in there and prosecutors are going to tell them, you know, what order things are going to come. And I mean, there's another case in Juneau that's in my, in my grand, in, in my request for a grand jury investigation in Juneau, which which speaks exactly to this, where a grand jury heard testimony, he voted to indict, and then a half hour later, he saw the witnesses engaging in conduct and saying things that convinced him that they were gaming the system. And then he brought that to the, pro- the attention of the prosecutor and the judge, and they did nothing. So, you know, th- this is something that um, is critical. And, and the way our grand juries operate today, the prosecutors try to control the entire process with the blessing of the court, which to me is a a breakdown of the separation of, of the, uh, of separation of powers, the doctrine of the separation of powers. But, you know, we, we don't have to get into that, but I just wanted to interject there, Jason. Sorry for the interruption, but to tell, you know, this is all about common sense and grand jurors don't need to cater to prosecutors or judges. They are the finders of fact. And as Lord Summer says, it's their determination. It's their game. It's not the judges or the prosecutors.
0: Totally agree. Totally agree. So uh, we're going to go ahead and Start the uh, the extrication process of exiting this uh, this this broken automobile. We need the jaws <laughs> of life to be reintroduced uh, in our state to pull the grand jury out of the crushed can that the courts have created, and to medicate and uh, provide first aid to that system restore it to its proper place as that fourth branch of government of, by and for the people and uh, we welcome you to continue in this special uh, episode Uh, this is the first episode of 14 and we'll see you uh, next time, I guess we'll record the next episode tomorrow, thank you so much David
1: All right, thank you so much, Jason, for the work that you're doing and bringing the light of truth to the people of Alaska. I really appreciate it.
0: Have a wonderful day, everybody.